Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some people will say, just dismiss fear, ignore it, keep moving forward. I say bring it along because when you try to dismiss it and ignore it, it tends to break out even stronger than what it was before. So I am not a proponent of blotting out your fear. I'm a proponent of accepting that it's there, accepting that I'm fearful, and then start to understand why am I fearful. In the back of your mind, your dreams should be real, right? Thanks all for tuning in to Dreamcatchers, where we make things happen. Dreamcatchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dream. Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. I've got the great pleasure of having my good friend and coach, James Bryan, here with me today. James, how are things in Richmond? Man, things in Richmond are going fine, man, and I'm phenomenal. Things have been really great for me. I have no complaints and only have praise. Yeah. And so you're the guy who chooses to be happy. Mm-hmm. About six months or so since we've done one of these episodes, maybe a little bit longer. Downloads are up. Listeners are more spread out. Why don't you do me a favor? Tell the listeners a little bit about you and your background. Okay. Uh, my name is James Bryant. I have known Jerome probably for about 10 years or more. We're, we've been debating about how long that's been. But, uh, you know, through the course of those years, we've become very good friends. Um, about me, I am a husband, a father, a friend, a life coach, an engineer, a multifamily apartment investor. I believe that uh, people have greatness on the inside of them. And a lot of times they need a little bit of help and coaching to be able to realize that for their life to reap the benefits of that realization. The whole concept behind Better You For You is understanding that there comes a time in life where you want to have to evolve and get better for yourself. It's not that I don't want to be better for my kids. I don't want to be better for my wife. Because everybody in my life receives benefits as I continue to improve and evolve, but I have to really want it. 
And so, you know, part of my vision, part of my goal, part of my mission is to help people walk down that journey. And to really, you know, one of the things I've been focusing on lately is the difference between self-care and selfish care. And a lot of times we view taking care of ourselves as being selfish, but it's not. Selfish care to me is I'm just doing what I want to do and it's not going to benefit anybody else. And I don't care if it benefits anybody else. I'm going to do it and it's only going to benefit me and only me. Self-care to me, I define that as being able to take those steps to care for yourself so that you can have the energy and the power, the presence and thoughtfulness to be in the moment with others and to help them along their journey. That's beautiful. So thoughtful as usual. So there's been a lot going on in the world since the last time we chatted and a lot of conflicting views and opinions and a lot of emotion. And we've had a, a lot of conversations, just the two of us trying to figure out where we are and what we think and how we think about things. And I don't know where to go first, probably COVID, because you always tell me, hey, you're not going back to normal. You're going to the new normal and stop trying to recreate what was old. And so let's talk about that, if you don't mind, just adjusting to the new frame and how you can I guess, get lost or romanticize the things that work? <laughs> it's easy for us to romanticize something in the past. You know, we look at the past and we say, this is how things were. And now in this present moment, I want to recreate the past. But the past is gone. In fact, it doesn't exist in this present moment. The past doesn't exist. This moment is what matters. And so when... COVID initially came around, I found myself trying to create or fit my old normal into the new normal. So the new normal, the kids are here during the day. My wife is here. The gym is closed. You know, I was used to a certain routine. My other coworkers that are on our team you know, they used to be engaged in other meetings and doing things. Now they're home. And so everybody has so much more time to engage on Zoom meetings or other things. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is not how my world is supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. And it took me a solid probably 30 to 45 days to really start to come to grips with and stop fighting against things were going to be different. And so coming in and accepting that, like I think acceptance is the first mm-hmm. step, right? And then what do you do after you accept it to kind of move on and adopt that new space? Well, when you accept it, that means you are not fighting your current situation and you are not resisting it. And the frustration begins to leave because a lot of times the frustration that we have compounds the issue. So, you know, here's the issue. The gym's closed. I can't go to the gym. I can't do the workouts that I'm used to doing. So is me being frustrated and getting upset going to help me with my goal of being healthy? No. Is it going to make me feel better? No, I may get a short, you know, relief, but the pressure is going to build back up and I'm going to have to work to do something different. And so once you accept it, 
then you start to look around and you appreciate what you do have in your life, right? So I accept this is going to be my new normal. I appreciate the fact that, hey, you know, everybody's home and there may not be the same amount of flexibility that I had before, but let me take advantage of what I have. One of the habits that I started picking up when the uh, gym closed was running. Now, you know, for me, I am a six foot three, about 300 pounds. I never in my life was a runner. And I always made excuses for not running. And that was, I'm too big. Um, You know, I have bad knees. My feet are, you know, jacked up. I'm not going to be able to really do it. So I'm not a runner. I'm not a runner. And then one day, I was on a Sunday, actually. I was uh, sitting in the house and I started to visualize myself running. And I sat there for a good hour just visualizing myself running. And the next thing I knew, I had on my shorts and my running shoes and I went for a run. Now, for a lot of people, you know, going out for that run didn't mean anything. But for me, it was a monumental shift in how I think and how I saw myself. Because a lot of things that you talk about with dream catchers is your self-image. So the self-image that I had before that moment was I couldn't run. I'm too big. It's not going to be something that I can do. I would actually see other people running and quietly envy them and, you know, kind of look at them and be like, man, that should be me one day. So on this day, I ran a 5K. And it took me, you know, about an hour. So this is not, you know, breaking next speed, but it was something I had never done before to run outside for over three miles in one setting, no walking, just running. And I remember I came back, you know, from my run, I got in front of my house and I called you. And I was like, look, listen, I'm here to tell you, if you ever tell yourself that you can't do something, know that it's not true. And I recounted some of the things that I talked about you know, here, it's just that, you know, when you have that voice in your head that's telling you that you can't do it, then you need to check that voice and understand, is this your mind trying to keep you safe because it's pushing up against something that you haven't done before? Or is this a legitimate issue? For me, I began to push myself beyond that. And before the gyms opened back up here in Richmond, I would go out running three to four times a week. Now I've paired that back because Orange Theory is open back up. So I'm, I'm going to Orange Theory every day. In fact, I'm still sweating because I just finished my workout about uh, less than an hour ago. But no more excuses. If there's something that you want to do, know that you can do it. So I think that is like amazing, right? And if you think about who you were, let's call it 24 months ago, mm-hmm. to who you are today, and the shifts that you made along the way. And you weren't at 300. You were bigger than that. Yes. Heavier than that. And you made your way back down. And, you know, you set a goal and you actually reached that goal. And the other thing that I've learned with the new normal is sometimes you just eat because you want to eat. <laughs> like, it's a, yeah. you're indulging in things that probably don't make the most sense. But, you know, with that said, I think fear is something that a lot of us are letting control our lives. And it's causing many of us to make some pretty 
unsavory decisions. I'll put it that way. I've heard people talk about their businesses are failing or they're paring their business back. And there are other people who are growing exponentially, right? And so I think it's amazing and you know awesome that we can choose what the environment actually means for us. And maybe we should go down that path of fear and what it means and why we shouldn't let it dictate our life or govern our life. Okay. A lot of it is our minds trying to keep us safe. This is the routine that I have. This is to keep me safe. And I don't want anything that's going to challenge that safety. But change is going to happen. And so the question is, do you guide that change and direct that change that can um, move you towards growing? Or do you just let change happen? And fear is a real issue. And the fear sometimes is real. So did I fear that I was going to hurt my knees or not be able to walk after I went to run? I think there was a little bit of that. Did I fear that something was going to go wrong? Yeah, there was. But I've learned to bring fear along to say, you know, I'm glad that my mind wants to keep me safe, but come along with me. I need you there because that's going to give me a sense of what I'm pushing against or fighting against. But I don't dismiss fear. Some people will say, just dismiss fear, ignore it, keep moving forward. I say bring it along because when you try to dismiss it and you put it in a box and ignore it, it tends to break out even stronger than what it was before. So I am not a proponent of blotting out your fear. I'm a proponent of accepting that it's there, accepting that I'm fearful, and then start to understand why am I fearful. I think the why in everything matters, right? It's just a way of life and practice. And so there's been a lot of race talk, right? And it's all been around fear and the lack of exposure or interaction with people from different races. And so, you know, I made a post on LinkedIn and it had about 27,000 views and tons of comments and likes. And we were able to open the door and have a few conversations. And the question that I asked was, do I scare you? And it was meant to be thought provoking. It was meant to ask people to tell the truth about their situation and their views and start to unpack the fear. Because I think once you unpack the fear, you can actually deal with the fear. But until you actually have that conversation to get the knowledge, awareness, engagement, whatever you want to call it, then you're stuck in that place. And I liken it to like being scared of a snake. Like you got a coral snake and a a regular red and black snake and one of them will kill you and the other is harmless and non-venomous. And you not knowing which one is which will fear both. But you know, one of them, you probably should, they pose a true threat. So you might want to move them off the property, but the other takes care of rodents for you. And so just knowing what you're fearing and why you're fearing it is, I think, extremely important. Uh, You took the boys down to one of the monuments in Richmond and allowed them to have, you know, a conversation about what happened. And, you know, I thought that was really profound. And if you don't mind sharing, I'd love to give the listeners opportunity to hear about that. 
Yeah, so you know, here in Richmond, Virginia, there's an area called Monument Avenue where they have several Confederate um, monuments and statues that are there. They also have a statue for of Arthur Ashe, a Richmond native there as well. But the majority of the statues are of the Confederacy or highlighting things from the Confederate. And so we took the boys down there and we went walking because people have started to deface those monuments, you know, putting things like Black Lives Matter, you know, in wage slavery, uh, all kinds of things on those monuments. And when we get to the Lee Monument, uh, people have actually put small memorials for folks that have died at the hands of police. And so you have an area where you have all of these little um, stakes in the ground uh, and you have a picture of the person and a little bit about their story about what happened to them. The monument itself has continued to be defaced, but uh, they've used that as a kind of calling point to be able to point out some other things. And so, yeah, we took the boys down there and we, we walked and we talked through why people have issues with um, the Confederate monuments and to give them some understanding of what was going on as a result of where George Floyd's murder was the catalyst to a lot of this unrest. And, and you know, one of my points is when I go down to the Richmond monuments, I see all types of people. I see brown people, black people, uh, white people, all there coming together in opposition to having those monuments there in opposition to what those monuments stood for. And here you have something that in the minds of people that was, was put there for division that now is being used to unify all of these different uh, races and people in opposition to its current existence or its current location. So I think a lot of people misinterpret like, the media has twisted a lot of stuff, right? I think at the end of the day, there's one galvanizing message for me. And that is we have to choose humanity over anything else, right? We've got to choose to see everybody as people. And it's a message that we have in our property ownership <laughs> when we're running apartment buildings. These are people and they're not dollar signs. They're not disposable. They're lives. And the minute that you forget that is the minute that you start making poor choices from a apartment ownership standpoint or a policing standpoint or anything else. And it's really interesting to see the dichotomy when you compare some of the stuff that's happened and highly politicized related to police and unarmed African-American men, COVID, right? Because we've basically run the whole economy into a ditch to protect people who are at risk related to COVID. And so it seems like it's humanity for some, and I think that's the part that is infuriating people. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I think it's definitely worth discussing. No, I mean, I would agree. You hear some of the media seem to be more concerned about property than they are people. You know, the people is who matters. And there is a humanity in it all. When I see a defaced Confederate monument, 
and I see all of the different things that are written on there, I see people in pain that are trying to find a way to express themselves. Is it the right way to express themselves? I'm not going to judge that. But what I do know is that they're trying to express themselves. They're trying to say, I'm a person that I want to be heard. I remember, you know, watching a few documentaries about the civil rights movement. And to me, it's really, you know, it's eye opening that African-Americans as part of their protest in the civil rights would walk around with signs saying, I am a man. I am a man. And I think a a lot of people are walking around saying, I am a man. See me as who I am, not just who you think I am. But I don't think that everyone that makes a racist comment is a racist person. I do believe that there are stereotypes and biases that have been formed through the lens of racism. And those stereotypes and biases run through all cultures, through all races, and those are the ones that we have to be aware of and to check. So, you know, I've told the story about a guy in graduate school. Uh, we were in graduate school together, in the lab together. Um, this gentleman was from a different country. You know, he came into the lab and we worked side by side. But every time there was a situation where he and I would be in the lab alone, he would get really nervous and find a, a, a ride back to campus or the doctor's apartment to get out of there. So this went on for several months. He and I eventually became friends. Um, I taught him how to drive, actually. But, you know, I asked him, I said, why is it that in the beginning you were very nervous? He didn't want to answer. But eventually he did answer. And his answer was he told me that he thought that I was quite violent. And that really perplexed me because I had never done anything to him or anyone else um, in grad school to give that impression. Look, this is before we had cell phones taking videos. So it wasn't like he saw me on social media or on some <laughs> video uh, doing something. And when I you know, asked him you know, why he felt that way, his response was, well, the things that I read and what I see on television tell me that Black men are violent. And so he judged me through a lens that he saw through that perception that was built up through the media and the different things that he had seen in the past and wasn't able to judge me for who I was because he didn't take the time at that time to get to know me. He was just reacting to some contrived picture of what an African-American man was. And this goes back to the exposure, right? So how did that make you feel? (laughs) Um, You know, at that time, it was like I didn't feel any kind of way at that time. I think when you live in a time where slights happen, where things happen, you learn how to become, quote unquote, tough skin. So you really don't even notice it. You're like, oh, well, you know, why did you think that? And then you keep going. Because at that time, when we had that exchange, we were friends. So it wasn't as if the friendship was going to end because of his past views of who I was. For me, it was more trying to provide him some exposure to let him know that, no, that's not the case. And hopefully when he interacts with African-American people in the future, he would not immediately assume that they were violent because of his experience and exposure to me. And so what 
created that situation though? Is it the way that media portrayed you? Did he have a bad experience? Like when you guys unpacked it, was there anything that actually made his fear rational? No, there was no rationality to his fear in terms of his own experiences. This was all things that he saw, you know, in his home country, looking at the different media and different things that portrayed African-Americans, period. Got it. Okay. And so the one other thing that we talked about that I thought was worth capturing here and memorializing was the fact that you felt numb when all the news broke about George Floyd. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit because I think it's counter to what a lot of people will expect. I think people expect everybody to be outraged and in fury and so on and so forth. But this story is really compelling. For me, it was when I first saw the headline, unarmed African-American male killed by police. I was numb to it because it's not as if this is the first time that something like this has happened. So I didn't think twice about it. And I fully expected some contrived story about how the officer feared for his life and therefore the officer shot the black man and the killing was justified. The officer goes back to work. And the Black family has to live with the aftermath of the death. And it wasn't until a few days later that I actually saw the video that something else, you know, I began to feel something different. Because when you see the humanity of the situation, and, um, you know, you have the officer, he has his knee on his neck. People are telling him, hey, the guy can't breathe. Mr. Floyd is saying, I can't breathe. You can see all kinds of issues that are going on there. And when you see that, in my mind, it was like, wait a minute. They can't explain this away. They can't say that the officer feared for his life. I mean, at one point, I believe several people had their knees on Mr. Floyd. So when that happened, it was like, wait a minute. Here was a guy fighting for his life or you know, fighting in terms of, wanting to stay alive and the officer's there with his knee on his neck and kind of nonchalantly there and, and you can see the life leave Mr. Floyd. And in that moment is when I began to feel just the overwhelming sense of sadness, sadness for Mr. Floyd and his family, sadness for the police officer, not anger toward the police officer, but sadness because To me, you have to be in a pretty bad position to disregard the humanity of someone else in the manner in which he did. It all comes back to the same place, man. Humanity and love. Uh, I think that's the only way that the world actually works as we designed it or hope for it to be designed here in the U.S. And so how do we get back to that place? How do we find that that space and how do we actually be the change that we want to see in the world? I think and we should take advantage of the political processes that we have in our country to be able to elect leaders that are consistent with the changes that we believe need to happen. So we have to have some level of political involvement 
I think we also have to have a certain level of community involvement, engaging with our police departments, engaging with the prosecutor's office, just in terms of looking at how change happens. But, you know, while that's going on, there's also the need for us to move beyond our own personal boundaries and engage with people that don't look like us and engage with people that don't think like us. And when I say engage with, it doesn't mean to convert them to your point of view. It means to actually exchange ideals and have a conversation, a two-way conversation, not a monologue, but a dialogue where you are fully present and you're fully listening to the other individual as they talk about their point of view, as they talk about the different things that they've gone through or their experiences, or as they talk about how they don't understand why you may feel the way that you feel. I think it's only through that kind of dialogue that we begin to chip away at the stereotypes and biases that have been formed through the lens of racism. Chip away at it. A little bit at a time. You're not going to be able to abolish it, not right away. It's not like all of a sudden you're going to snap your finger and, you know, everything's going to be different. But it has to work from the top, from the political process, the neighborhood process, or the community process, and the individual process. And this is how we need to engage and tell that story and to make that shift so that for my children, for your children, they won't have to face some of these same issues that we face today. And I mean, I think our parents have made it better so that we live in a world that's better than what they lived in when they were coming along. I remember intensely people trying to make the comparison of the killings and the murders by some of the police officers across the country to water hoses and dogs being sicked on protesters. And I just don't see the parallelism there. I think those are very different things and things that have changed dramatically for the better. I think they are different. Um, And yes, things have changed, but they may have taken a different form or a different shape. So whereas you had outright racism in the past leading up to and through the civil rights movement, you still have the leftover, the spillover effects of systemic and structural racism that we have in our institutions in the country. And so some of those things are seen and some of those things are not. Some of those things you see through the level of homeownership, some of those things that you see through the level of people being able to build wealth, having access to capital for businesses. And it's not that things have not gotten better, because I do believe that things have gotten better, but there's always going to be room for improvement. There's always going to be things that we can do to continue to improve. And so... When do we know that we've had success? Because there's always opportunity to get better or, you know, the biggest room is always a room for improvement. So when have you actually established success and outrage isn't actually necessary? That is a difficult one to answer, my friend. I don't have a statistical answer to give you. You know, you can say, you know, when the rate of change or success in different metrics are similar or comparable when you start looking at the different social economic breakdown, if we continue along the path that we're on, we'll still face some of the racial issues 
but there's really going to be a big social economic issue between the haves and the have nots. And I think at the pace we're going, maybe not with our children's generation, but if we continue on that pace, then I think the economic divide is going to be the biggest divide. This ties into changing the face of wealth. And so how do we have that conversation so that people expect wealth to look different than what it traditionally has been, right? Historically, it's a white man and with gray hair. How do we begin to shift that narrative so that people know that they too can be wealthy? One, I think we continue to broaden the definition of wealth so that it expands beyond just money and you know having a whole bunch of material things and resources right so that's the first thing you know wealth is more than money you know you have a wealthy lifestyle as you have a healthy lifestyle as you are spiritually grounded in whatever your faith is as you show care and concern for others and you build the community around you but in terms specifically from a financial perspective I think we continue to tell stories of people that are doing well financially. And, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that people sometimes get discouraged when they don't see other people like themselves. They don't know that they can do it until they've seen someone who has done it. And as we tell the stories, as you tell the stories on Dreamcatchers, as you are engaging people that are in that wealthy place, then we create more exposure that people can identify with to say, oh yeah, that's that James Bryant guy. He chooses to be happy and he invests in apartment complexes because he thinks that he can do well and do good at the same time. He has investments that are aligned with his values. So we have to continue to tell those stories. And so in telling the stories, we begin to be our own media companies and begin to shift the narrative and put examples up of people who don't historically fit the mold for doing well or well-to-do. I remember as a kid, I was misguided and I thought cars and rims and that was the ultimate level of wealth. And if you had that, but you were living at home with your parents, then you were doing well. And I learned through mentorship and books and other things that that's not truly the goal. The goal is to have the choice to do those things if that's what you want to do. But Showing everybody that you have it isn't actually the answer to being wealthy. And the majority of people who look like they're doing well are struggling to keep up that facade. I absolutely agree. I would not be the one going around in the fancy cars with the rims and all of the other things that uh, say that I'm wealthy. I wear a pair of jeans, a shorts, and a shirt all day and be great and have money in the bank. I'd much rather have the different investments that are working and making money for me and put that money in some of those other things. But that's just me. So for me, you've heard the story where, you know, my dad really cemented for me that people matter more than money. Uh, You know, we had a small church in Philadelphia. There was a guy that was going to help us to secure the permits for a building. You know, he seemed like he knew what he was talking about. And the people in the church came together and raised money and they were giving this man the money. So he'd go down to the office, you know, downtown in City Hall to make this deal. And so it was me and my dad and 
this guy, we're in a car and he says, okay, I'm going to go, you know, talk to the guy. And me as a kid, I don't know, I may have been eight years old. Oh, I want to go with him, dad. I want to go with him. Cause this was a really exciting moment. So I go with him and we're down there near city hall and the guy tells me to sit down and he says, so, you know, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. You just stay right here. And he leaves. And so I'm a kid and I'm sitting there for me, it seems like an eternity. And this guy's not here. We didn't have cell phones back then. My dad didn't know where I was at. I didn't know where I was at. And I began crying. I just, I was, you know, kind of lost. And my dad finally found me. And I told my dad, I'm crying, dad, dad, he took the money. He took the money. I don't believe it. He took the money. And my dad says, I don't care about the money. I was worried about you. As long as you're safe, then the money will take care of itself. And that story and that approach kind of informs how I live my life now. To me, the people are important. My family is important. And it's not that I have no regard for building wealth or the accumulation of things, but I try to put those things in proper perspective. And I think you have, my friend. And it shows up in everything you do. Well, I appreciate you jumping on the podcast with me today. I think this has been an extremely thoughtful and reflective episode. As always, we get a chance yeah. to chat. And uh, yeah, man, it's a great way to end it. Do you have any parting words for the listeners? Listen, things have been absolutely wonderful for me. Um, I've been picking up more coaching clients. I've been more comfortable in my skin, just you know, in, in my craft as a coach. Um, and if I can move beyond my limiting beliefs, anybody can. If I can move beyond things that uh, would stop me from running all of these years and all of a sudden start running again or running for the first time, then you can overcome anything that you face. I believe that you have greatness on the inside of you. I believe that you have all of the ingredients that you need for success. If you need some help pulling those things out, you can see my man, Jerome, or you can see me and we'll help you do that. What's the best way for folks to get in contact with you? Shoot me an email, james at betteryouforyou.com. Awesome, man. Thanks for your time and we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.